though I do admit that I was once in a bachelorette fantasy league. So I will admit to that. Okay. Like you were trying to, you had money on. I came in last, so <laughs> you will not be surprised. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone as confused by the latest health study as I am by, so this needs a drum roll, the socks with independent slots for your different toes. Mm. I just received these as a gift. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say... (laughs) And I, my, my, my toes, I don't feel like they're like independent actors. You know, they, they like work as a unit. They're a team. They're kind of a team. But what happens when they're, you know, segmented this way? I tried them on and they felt weird. So what? I felt like I should discuss it with I, both I of you. I think this is important. I'm glad you finally raised these. <laughs> yeah, this. this is a what, very important issue. Why do we need these? Who thought there was a need for these? I don't know. I guess it's kind of like mittens or gloves, but you know, gloves at least you know you but have you to drive need and open for, doors. And, yeah, you need your right. independent fingers. You don't pick things up or manipulate things. With, you don't drive with your toes. That's true. Well, most anymore. of us at least. Right? I think you're. Su- I think the idea is that you're supposed to be using your toes more independently. Oh, to do what? So what it's like you, aspirational. What do you have? Right. Maybe walking or running. You know, that is like a thing in running, right? Like trying to balance your weight across your toes. Like yeah. for people who I've, so I've heard for people who are kind of serious runners, like, right? Huh. So maybe it's supposed to activate your memory that you have. Maybe. Different I, toes? I'm not in favor. Not, in, not favor. in favor. All right, voting it down. Yep. <laughs> what can I say? Plus, I, my, my toes need space to like wiggle around by themselves, like in the, in the full sock I see. Area. So they don't, they like wouldn't be comfortable in like their yeah, own Yeah, they don't want to be concealed. Right. Yeah. I don't know. What a weird thing. It is a weird thing. Oh. I've never had these socks. Uh-huh. But I do think that I would enjoy them because I think maybe you would get more of a feeling of freedom mm-hmm. in your toes if they had a little bit of fabric separating them from the other toes. That's part of it's a sensory experience for sure. To what, try. Was, what was it like? Yeah, it's like them? you definitely notice skiing in between your toes in a way that you see. Even Nick is nodding. He's like, "Yup, I get." It. So uh, this this we're spending way too much time on this <laughs> than we should, but it's important, I think. Your your fingers have a lot of you can extend you can fan out your fingers and there's a lot of room in between that that fabric can be in there. Your toes don't move that far apart, and so having fabric in there, unless it's really thin fabric, I think is going to be problematic. I don't know. Some people's toes move far apart. Like, and not that we want to spend more time on this. Like my brother, for example, <laughs> his toes, like he can do all kinds of crazy things like the little ones and like, yeah. All right. I, John I like is to... nodding in I had a physical therapist yes. recommend toe yoga, which oh, I would wow. admit that I Toga? did not stick with for, but you tried that's not it. what he called it. Probably <laughs> that is like the next, I didn't, if, probably on Reddit as Toga, but it, yeah, I, I, I did it a little bit. And then, you know, as one does with physical therapy, I Stop doing that. This one does with toe yoga. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I was fully caught on. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, I'm Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health at the Boston University School of Public Health, here again with my esteemed co-host, Dr. Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health, also from the Boston University School of Public Health. Welcome, Matt. Good to be in the other chair this time. Yes, we are so excited. And we are joined by repeat fan favorite returning guest. Returning champion. Dr. Jonathan Jay from the Department of Community Health Sciences at BUSPH. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me. I'm over here wiggling my toes. (laughs) 
so as I'm, we I know, are. So now I am too. <laughs> now we just have to, this is just a thing now for it's free associations. Me conscious of my toes. Okay. <laughs> as a reminder, head on over to the Population Health Exchange website, pophealthex.org, BUSPH's hub for lifelong learning for archived episodes and other online learning opportunities. And another reminder, rate us on Apple Podcasts and all your major podcasting sites to help others find us. Now onto the show. Today in our first segment, our journal club segment, we're going to do a deep dive into a study on the role of neighborhood factors and neighborhood disadvantage and physical fitness in young children. In the second part of the podcast, we'll talk about your favorite section of a published manuscript, the discussion section. And in our amazing and amusing segment, we'll get into some things that just make us laugh out loud or otherwise we found interesting. In segment one, we're getting into an article that looked at physical fitness and neighborhood factors in children. It was published in the American Journal of Epidemiology, and the study was titled Longitudinal Associations Between Neighborhood Child Opportunity and Physical Fitness for New York City Public School Youth by first author Hiwat Zudi in the Department of Epidemiology at the University of Washington School of Public Health. I didn't see a whole lot of news on this one, so why don't we jump right in? Matt, let me start by asking you to describe the study and what they found. Yeah, I enjoyed this study. Full disclosure, again, I am on the editorial board of the American Journal of Epidemiology, and I do know one of the authors of this study, but I will try to be objective. So we know a lot about physical fitness and health. We know that physical fitness is important for overall health, low fitness associated with poor cardiovascular disease risk and childhood, as well as cardiometabolic disease, cancers, all-cause mortality, and all these things in adulthood. So childhood physical fitness, therefore, is, is something that we care a lot about. And we know that there are lots of kids in the United States who don't meet standards for being physically fit. So in the U.S., nationally, 21 to 35 percent of boys and 20 to 32 percent of girls between fourth and 12th grade meet performance standards. So those are the ones that meet the performance standards, what, what the standards are, I don't know the specifics on how they judge that, but that was between 2020 to 2014. So most kids are not actually meeting what we would consider to be the standard for physical fitness. Now, we know that physical fitness is determined by a number of factors, some of them genetic, but also a number of them are environmentally determined. And what we don't really know a ton about is the way that neighborhood environment either hinders or supports fitness promoting behaviors for kids. This has been studied a fair bit in adults, but not so much in kids. And given that we know that childhood fitness is an indicator of, of adult health and adult fitness, this is something that we care about. I say there has been past research on this as has found associations between things like neighborhood walkability and youth fitness, walkability, sidewalk access, green space, and mixed land use have been associated with youth BMI, and there's been negative associations between fast food proximity, so the closer you live to fast food proximity, and, and uh, experiences of crime or crime in the neighborhood, and BMI. But we don't really know too much about how these things come together to produce health in, or fitness, excuse me, in children. So this group wanted to look at longitudinal associations between neighborhood opportunity and youth physical fitness. And I'll explain what neighborhood opportunity is. And they did this in the New York City public schools because they had access to data that could describe both the communities within which the children were living, but also their health. 
And so they use something called the Childhood Opportunity Index, which is a composite index of 29 indicators measuring neighborhood opportunity at the census tract level. So it's not an individual level measure, but you can get down to the census tract and describe the opportunities that a child would have in terms of their environment. And then they linked that to the New York City Fitnessgram data set, which is a data set on physical fitness in kids in the New York City school system. Now, the Childhood Opportunity Index, abbreviated as COI, which is confusing because for us, that's conflict of interest, but that is not what we're dealing with here, is a data set managed at Brandeis at the Heller School, which gives information on neighborhood-based conditions conducive to healthy childhood development. And the New York City Fitness Gram is a data set managed by the Department of Education and Health and Mental Hygiene, which composes data, individual level data on over 800,000 youth between grades four and 12 in the New York City public schools. So what they did was they linked these data sets and took the data from the academic years 2011 and 12 through 2017 and 2018 and looked at kids in grades four through eight in the baseline year. They took that COI, that Childhood Opportunity Index, and categorized it as low, moderate, high, or very high. In other words, low would be an indication of an environment that had poor resources in terms of facilitating childhood health, and high, very high or high being ones that had lots of access to factors that were good. They also looked at some of the individual factors themselves and looked to see how those factors related to a number of outcomes that would be indicative of physical health. So they looked at things like BM curl-ups, push-ups, and then the progressive aerobic cardiovascular endurance run, otherwise known as the pacer, which all I have to do in my household is say the word pacer and my kids immediately groan because I remember them doing this when they were in school. Wow. Okay. And the, the idea yeah. of the pacer, at least as my kids have explained it to me, is a miserable, soul-crushing experience. Yeah, no, 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 yeah. that's not it. The idea is that you run between, I think, between two points and you have a, a sound that beeps and you've got to see you know, like how many laps you can do in that time. And you have to meet a minimum number and it gets progressively shorter the time. So in other words, in order to continue on in the next round, you have to run faster each time to make that minimum. And this is seen as a way to measure health, I guess, or physical fitness. Induce stress in the youth. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And so when they cut down their analytic sample to those who met the inclusion criteria, they had about 200,000 kids in these school systems, and most of them were living in either low 30% or very low opportunity neighborhoods, 41%. And they linked the data and analyzed it using a three-level generalized linear mixed model. Not particularly important to us, but just to note that they sort of clustered people within census tracts and, you know, effectively grade and time. And they adjusted for things like SES, poverty, and things like that. I point that out to just to note that you might think, well, it, when you see these relationships, they may just be an indicator of uh, living in poverty or low socioeconomic status, but they did try to account for that. So in in best case scenario, these would be effects that they identify independent of those factors within an opportunity level. 
And what they found was there was an association, I should say, between the child opportunity index levels and levels of fitness. Now, they looked at, you know, as I said, a number of these different outcomes. And so how you actually interpret these, I think, is, you know, whether you see these as big effects or small effects. But they found that, for example, I'll just give you one. Green space was associated with a 0.72 increase per year in number of pacer laps. Walkability was associated with a 0.72 increase in laps, and commute duration was associated with uh, almost a full lap increased per year. We'll come back to that commute duration one because that was one that was kind of counterintuitive. But effectively, these, these different levels were associated with reductions in opportunity were associated with reductions in fitness. Hard for me to say whether or not these were large differences or meaningful differences, but we can come back and and talk a little bit about that. So that would be that would be the the general finding, and we can talk about what those results mean. Thanks, Matt, for that review of the study. That was terrific. I'm going to flip over to John. What did you think of this paper? What were the strengths or challenges that jumped out to you? I think I had. I was excited about the dimension of this paper focused on the neighborhood environment, sort of neighborhood social disadvantage in general, and some of the built environment characteristics in particular. And this is something that we think about a lot in in my work, my lab's work, in how outcomes like, in our case, gun violence, which are often seen as really individual level or interpersonal phenomena, are strongly influenced by social factors and built environment factors. And built environment in particular is highly modifiable. So these are places where we could use specific investments to reverse legacies of inequitable disinvestment and help people stay healthier and safer. I think for this particular paper, sort of, although I was excited about the exposures, I was kind of not sure how this way of looking at these outcomes fits into the larger conversation in public health and society around children's bodies, their fitness mm. and their weight. And so that th- I thought maybe we could sort of go into both of those. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I had the same, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that your kids have experienced the pacer. One of the, or you had experience endured, of, endured the pacer. One of the things I wondered was, you know, how reliable are these outcome measurements that are done on an annual basis in the school PE class of kids' actual fitness? Like, I'm sure there's some kids who are like, I'm going to give it my all. I'm doing the pull-up challenge for PE today. And then there's there's other kids who, you know, one of my daughters in particular, where my husband was like, how fast can you run the miles? She's like, I don't know. I walked and I chatted with Chloe. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and so I, she's like, I just walked in and talked with Chloe. Right. And so, it, you know, it's, I think for some kids, it's an accurate measurement of their fitness. I, I feel like for other kids, it, it might not be, but it's such a big study. I don't know. Maybe it evens out. Matt, what do you think? Yeah. Measurement error was the thing that I wrote down as being the sort of the, probably the biggest thing that I would be concerned about in trying to interpret these results. I do think that there is there is probably mismeasurement in most of these variables. That's that's not a specific. That's not specific to this study in any way. I think these things are quite hard to measure. I think if you were trying to do something on physical fitness directly, you'd really have to engage with 
the communities that you were working with to explain the importance of it, of, of really trying with this to try and assess that. That said, I mean, I, I, given that these things are on average way lower than we'd want them to be, it you know you'd have to you'd have to have a lot of measurement error, I think, to be able to explain why only twenty to thirty percent of kids are actually meeting physical fitness targets. So, you know, I. I I definitely think it's a problem. I definitely think it's something that, you know, if we wanted to try to confirm this, we would have to come up with ways to ensure really good measures. At the same time, I don't think it it concerns me so much that I would say I don't believe these results. I had another question on the outcome side, and then I, I want to talk about the index. So they pull out, and they have these four distinct outcomes. It's the pacer, push-ups, pull-ups, and BMI. Push-ups, pull-ups, and the pacer are three kind of physical activities that you can measure. BMI is a physical characteristic of someone's body type. And I imagine that BMI is associated in some ways with some of these with your ability to run fast in the pacer. But they viewed them independently here. And I wasn't sure exactly what I thought. The, The outcomes to me seemed different. You had these three outcomes of physical performance and then this one kind of physiological characteristic of the actual child. And I don't know, I was wondering what you thought of that, the diversity of the outcome types and whether or not kind of BMI was on actually a causal pathway between the neighborhood level exposures and your ability to do pull-ups, for example, or if it was worthy of viewing it distinctly as a separate outcome. Well, I feel like these authors want to say sort of we're looking at fitness in the first place because ultimately it's going to be associated with cardiovascular health outcomes. This is what I was thinking about, Matt, as you're talking about measurement error, is that these authors say, you know, BMI is like not a great measure, not a great predictor of health. It's a strength of this study that we're looking at more proximal measures like pull-ups or how well you do on this like Squid Game type uh, uh, shuttle <laughs> run test, yeah, I mean. which, which I, I guess is I guess it's a strength. But then I mean they do report BMI. They they acknowledge that it's not a very strong predictive measure, but they don't acknowledge that it's a harmful. Mm. The sort of like that there are social harms associated with our fixation on children's body mass index. Right? Can, can you say more about that? Because I'm I'm quite quite interested in this. This is not my area of study, but you know I think there's been a lot of conversation recently, p- partly stimulated by professional guidelines, I think it was um, American Academy of Pediatrics, recently sort of like went hard on child obesity, recommending like very strongly medicalized sort of a- And very aggressive. Aggressively around, so I think some combination of like early quote unquote lifestyle interventions, and then followed up with really sort of like early medicalization with weight loss drugs that gave extra fuel to this conversation that we're having around what it means to live in a larger body to what extent does having a larger body mean that you're unhealthy? And even if there are some associations with health outcomes, how might those associations be explained by the stigma and discrimination that people experience from living in larger bodies starting in childhood, right? So like little kids understand that thinner bodies are more favored. It has all of these harms throughout the life course. So the idea of measuring BMI in a study like this is, isn't happening in a vacuum, sort of in isolation from those larger issues. It was something that I might have liked to see in the discussion section of a paper like this. So then I, I wondered kind of the same thing about the physical fitness measures. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. It, how, how should we be thinking about kids' physical fitness at the same time that we're having these conversations about children's body size. And and so if they had left out BMI and just focused on these measures of, of you know, pull-ups, push-ups, and the pacer, just focusing on those three, do you 
do you are you convinced that there is something going on between a childhood opportunity as measured by these various factors or in aggregate and physical fitness? I, I think part of why I was convinced here was that they did something that a lot of studies don't do, which was to disaggregate mm. their index variable mm-hmm. in order to look at what we might expect to have a more proximal relationship with physical activity in particular. So if you live on a block that has good sidewalks and there are places that you might want to walk to and there is green space and a more conducive environment to safe physical activity, it makes sense that you would be capable of getting outside more and moving around more and that that would improve your physical fitness. I mean, I don't know if you're going to like go outside and run little like 20 meter shuttles, right? <laughs> but I, I guess maybe it does seem like it could contribute to your performance on these tests. And so I think that was that was really important here that they were able to show that it's not just that there's kind of an association with this really complex social disadvantage measure, but specifically neighborhood built environment. Yeah, whenever I see these 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 aggregate measures, I always think, okay, so those are going to be useful for for descriptive epidemiology, they're going to be useful for being able to identify areas that are poorly resourced and need attention and intervention. But in order to actually then figure out what do we do, we need to know specifically what is it in that measure that is having the uh, the greatest harm, or is there a series of things that that might on um, you know smaller things that we could we could do cheaper, but that will add up to an improvement in health? I'm convinced that there is a re- there's a, there's a relationship here, and and I'll even go as so far as to say I I believe that there is a causal relationship here. I don't know whether that's being accurately measured here or not, but I believe that that there is a causal relationship between the environment that you're living in, whether it's access to green space or whether it's crime and therefore you stay more in your house and you don't you're not as active, whatever it is. I believe that. Does that mean though that we could then go to saying, okay, and I think this is what you were getting into the beginning, that we could then say, if we change the environment, we will see this improvement in health. And that's where I'm, I believe there are, that is possible, but I'm not convinced that it will happen. So that just because you change the environment, it would necessarily lead to improvements in health. So I'm curious what you all, how you all think about that. I mean, a lot of the the changes that might come from adjusting components of this index are structural and very, very difficult to change. And it actually, as we're having this conversation, it is reminding me why there's a focus on BMI, because it's something that can be, you know, that they can say, okay, here's things in your individual family or your individual life that were, and it's a very clear measurement and it's their behavioral factors. When we start to think about community level structural factors like greenness or access to open space or commute time. These are things that it's very difficult to think about, like, you know, to think about or would be incredibly expensive to intervene around, say we're going to add another subway stop or, you know, and so it makes sense to me kind of going back to your earlier conversation, why BMI becomes the target, because it's something that on a very individual patient level basis, a physician could say to the family, this is what I think you should do. And where it's much harder to say on the community level, this is a function of green space in your neighborhood. There's not enough green space. And if you increase green space and you increase kids' access, access to playgrounds, then that's going to affect their BMI and that's going to affect their fitness. I think I feel the opposite, <laughs> which is that, you know, sort of it has the potential to be more cost effective to improve the 
park or add a community. I think New York City, where the study was done, is actually like, even though there's a lot of parks, there's just such a large population that it's actually very like sort of park deprived. Mm -hmm. And so if you were to improve the park on this corner, it's like maybe that makes it possible for children to get out and move around and improve fitness in a way that actually, you know, it's like having your doctor, spending this time in your expensive, you know, like medical visit to, to tell you to move around more. It's like, that might just make no difference or, you know, make too little of a difference if it's like, where am I supposed to run around? You know, you're telling me to do something that's impossible. So it, like in, in my space around violence prevention, there's actually incredibly high return on investment around relatively inexpensive changes to the built Structural environment. Change, built and even if they were pretty expensive, they would still be, they could still be cost effective because it's just so expensive to have people uh, getting shot. No, I think you're right. And it's not to say that the physician level interventions are cost effective because they typically do not work. That's my understanding. They're not, is effective. That they're, they're not effective. They're cheap, and so but they're not effective. They're cheap, but they're not effective. And so kind of thinking more in the public healthy sense of what are these neighborhood-based structural interventions seems really smart. And this seems to me where the difference, and you said cost effective, this is where the difference between cost and cost effective comes mm-hmm. in because you're right. You're, you're both right. I mean, it's, it's, well, I shouldn't say I know that you're right, but I assume you're right, that that it's probably cost effective to make these big structural changes, but it's very costly. And so you have to be able to come up with the money to be able to make these investments. But at the same time, you know, so you talked about the, the stigma of uh, associated with BMI and I, and I hear you about that. But I, for me, the thing that I focus on is the we, we do that. We tell people, you know, if we have these physician interventions, we tell people, you know, move around more when that may actually not be possible because we don't want to invest the money in the things that would be actually good for the entire community because that's expensive and they're typically, it's a bigger problem in communities that have less access to resources and power. And so we end up just saying, oh, it's, it's your fault and we'll just leave it at, you know, you're, you're responsible for doing this. It's the same thing we did with COVID, right? I mean, it's the same thing we did with, we do with, with most public health problems. We treat it as it's an individual problem when it's a, a societal problem. I think that was the biggest contribution of this particular paper kind yep. of trying to extract the source of the problem, quote unquote, from the individual and to say, you know, to look at finely geospatially resolved quarters. Can I ask you one quick question before we move on? For our student listeners, students always have an interest in these indice variables and these indexes. And what do you think of this one? Or are there other, what are the characteristics of a good index variable that if you're going to use one in your research that you would say, this is the one I want to, I want to use, or this one has too many, you know, disparate components. And I don't think it's that valuable. So I think child opportunity. So Matt, I think you might've said childhood opportunity index. Oh, did but I? This is child opportunity index. Okay. Uh, I think is one of the best established index variables in its space. I think it's described in this paper as a sort of surveillance tool for all of the different factors that maybe I should check. I think sort of whether it's about the social factors that influence child outcomes or if it's about measuring the child outcomes themselves. I think this is this is a strong one in that it covers many different domains. And I know they've done a lot of work to get finally resolved census tract level information. And so I think that's that's a strength. And but I think it's really important for students as they think about studies like are you using, when you are thinking about one of these index variables as the exposure measure in your study, is it well matched to the actual 
causal relationship that you're trying mm. to investigate. This is something that happens. It's been happening around gun violence in particular, the use of the social vulnerability mm-hmm. index, which is, you know, sounds good. You know, sound, the words social vulnerability sound like they're really on point for thinking about interpersonal violence, but social vulnerability index includes variables that were intended to pick up what will happen in a disaster situation. And in, so it includes, it includes including variables that are not true risk factors for community level gun violence. And so we really need to be thoughtful about, you know, when, how we're pairing our index variable with our conceptualization of the problem. Yeah. I don't use these very often. Uh, to me, their, their biggest value is as adjustment variables, as, as confounder variables, because like they, package. they like soak a, up yeah. a lot of the variability. And so there can be usefulness in there. If you use them as, you know, as John said, like if you're thinking about it in a causal way, I don't know that we can say here that a X point or percentage increase in the COI will lead to X change in the outcome because it's possible that there are factors in the COI that you could increase one, decrease another, but the one that you increased is the one that actually has the stronger impact. And so you'd get a net benefit from that. So unless we know what it is that is is part of the the causal structure we don't learn as much now that that doesn't mean there are you know that it doesn't make sense to use them there are times when you just can't get at what you need and so you know it's a reasonable place to start but ultimately i think we want to start thinking about what are the the factors within the index that we were going to use as levers to try and improve health i totally agree i mean there's there's quite a number of these now that are kind of prepackaged index variables that you can use on the census track or a zip code level. And it's not always clear, like you're saying, that it's related to your core research hypothesis or that all the components in that package as they're packaged in that index are related. And then you're totally correct, Matt, from a perspective of what do we do with this? If you get one point for poverty at a certain level and one point for green space at a certain level and you have high of one and low in the other and they, you know, you you don't, you don't know how necessarily to intervene unless you can unpack the different components of the index. So great. Thank you both for your perspectives on that. Let's pivot to segment two. For this segment, we're going to talk about a perspective piece in the journal Synthes. Is that how you say it? This is a Matt selection. Synthes. Synthes. I only, I know it's not a journal I would read. I just, the article. It's not at your bedside table. article hit me in a place that. I live deep in the gut. Okay. By, by Philip Schoeniger and Raymond Pills called quote, social sciences in crisis on the proposed elimination of the discussion section. It's a very descriptive title. These authors discuss the function of science and society more generally and whether the structures, interestingly guiding academic incentives are at odds with the idealized view of science and they society. Are. Focus on the discussion <laughs> section as an opportunity to change this dynamic. Matt, jump in. You have some strong feelings here. I have very strong because I have been saying for years and years and years that I would like to get rid of discussion sections. And I am on an isolated little island by myself. I've almost never had anyone say to me, yeah, great idea. So I know I am in the very, very small minority on this one, but I don't like discussion sections and I don't like them for a number of reasons. Now, it doesn't mean I don't think they have value. There is some in there. I think I just think that on balance, the cons out way the pros. So, okay. So first of all, I just start by acknowledging this is a topic that is very specific to the research community, right? This is something 
maybe the general public doesn't care about as much, except in that the place where I do think discussion sections probably do have a, a reasonable amount of influence is in studies that get picked up by the press, where I think the discussion section largely can frame the way that the media picks it up. However, given that the majority of studies don't actually get a lot of media attention, I think of this more from the perspective as me as a researcher talking to other researchers, only one function of our job. But I think, you know, much research ends up in, in that so that we can make advances. Discussion sections then seem to me a huge opportunity for motivated reasoning and self-promotion, two things that I'm not a big fan of, right? I have every incentive to convince you that my study is great and to the extent that my study fits in with the greater, you know, the, the overall literature, mine is the best one that's ever been done. And if it agrees with the rest of the literature, I am simply proving what those other studies hinted at but couldn't really do as well as I could do. And if they disagree, well, my study is better anyway, so really you should believe mine. Obviously, there are other aspects to discussion sections. My second critique of discussion sections is the way they are generally written is you get basically the conclusions of a discussion section in the first paragraph. Then you put the study in context of literature. Then you talk about the limitations. And you've already drawn the conclusions without actually anybody knowing what the limitations are. So we're effectively saying, you know, you don't really have to pay any attention to those things. Those aren't really big deals. Third, the, the limitations themselves, I find, are often not as useful as they could be in that we are not incentivized to say, my study was really, you know, had these, these gaping flaws, right? We're incentivized to tell you about things that I think are going to be just enough to convince you that I'm being honest while not enough to convince you that my study is, is highly problematic. So I don't always, I, I mean, I find this limitation section is useful, but not as useful as they could be if, if we knew everything. So you can react to all that, but then I have proposed the idea of what if instead of me writing my discussion section, somebody else got to write the discussion section for my paper? That would be hard to do, of course, because they don't know the limitations as well as I know it, and they don't know the, the sort of the, the ins and outs of my study. But what if we did both? What if every study got published with both my interpretation of the study and somebody else got to put theirs in? Obviously, you can have a letter to the editor that would do that, but I think actually putting it into the paper might make a difference. So I'll let you react to all of that rant over. I think one of the, the points that these authors make is that there are certain incentive structures for an academic career that involve getting credit. They call it you know, credit, kind of getting credit for the work that you do. And the place in the academic paper that you weave in your claim to credit is in the discussion section mm -hmm. where you can, you know, highlight the data that you found, you know, highlight the data that you have that reinforces your hypothesis, minimize the other data or minimize your other findings that didn't coordinate with your a priori hypothesis going in and then minimize again the limitations of your research by kind of talking up all the reasons why it's so great. And they kind of hone in on that section as the key area where researchers kind of can try to manipulate their ability to get credit. 
anyway, John, what is what is your thought on this? I like Matt's proposal better than the proposal to get rid of it. Okay. I was surprised by this piece because I was, you know, I came in thinking like, oh, the problem with discussion sections is that they're boring. <laughs> they are boring. That too. They are <laughs> I, boring. Just, I feel like people are not doing everything they could be doing with their discussion sections, not picking up sort of like not contextualizing their results in all of the ways that I wish they would. But I think that eliminating them would be really costly. So I can see how it, you know, if you just eliminated the discussion section by the authors, they're not allowed to kind of inflate their findings as much. But, you know, it's like the the authors, the ones who decided to do the study, the ones who know the data really well, I think we should aspire for those authors to be able to provide some of the context for readers to interpret the results. And and it's important, like just in a world with no discussion sections, you just have all these analyses and data out there and like everyone just kind of left to fend for themselves and like figuring out what the research means. But the idea that someone else would come in and give their point of view, I think could be quite useful if you can get people to do that in thoughtful, useful ways. And and that's the biggest, biggest problem right. with this proposal is how, I mean, so you can come up with a system, right? That says like you publish X number of papers Therefore, you have to write X number of discussions. But the incentives wouldn't be aligned with me doing a good job, right? My incentive would be to just get it done. So you'd have to come up with a way that you got credit for this. You know, maybe you maybe you get authorship, not of the main paper, but it's sort of listed as as authorship. But even then, I'm not sure that people would do a great job. So it's not a, it's not a foolproof solution to anything. I, I just thought it was, you know, I, I think we need something to shake things up. I, I should say, I mean, I, I do agree with you. I mean, the putting things in, in context, part of it can be valuable. And also like discussion sections can be useful for somebody who's completely coming in cold to a literature. So like we, Many of the papers we review are areas we're not topic experts on. And so I do find, you know, I can read this and see a little bit more about what the literature found. On the other hand, I'm also aware there have been a lot of these studies that have looked at, like, if you take the totality of literature on a particular topic, and then you look at what actually gets cited in discussion sections, it's very much weighted towards the things that confirm and away from the things that dispute what you've found. So, you know, I don't know. This picture in my mind elevated the larger question as to whether or not the academic paper or the manuscript that we write now is the best form of communication of science across all domains and across all you know, moments in time and, and all needs. I mean, I think these authors make the case that the discussion section now doesn't fit the true needs of science. Mm-hmm. And that could very well be true. And it does have some other needs. I think it helps researchers who are unfamiliar. You know, it could help the media, for example. Do the other sections help always that much either? Could they be written in a shorter form? You know, to what extent could you take an academic paper and basically turn it into tables, figures, and bullets? And that then would make it much more, much easier to communicate across different audiences rather than, you know, this article on discussion section was 23 pages, right? And they also at the end propose a separate discussion paper, right? But they don't have an incentive structure as to how to actually get people to do that. But are there other forms, you know, are there other forms of valid science communication where as academics, we could get quote unquote credit for it that might actually make it easier for, you know, I thought they made this brilliant point that the the ultimate goal of science is for it to be self-correcting. That if someone puts out 
findings that are fraudulent or are just incorrect for whatever reason, that someone else is able to figure that out later and correct it, that the scientific record can be corrected. But is there a way to, to do that more efficiently in terms of how we share our findings and data? I am going through the process of getting off of Twitter completely. And I have quickly learned that there's, unless you want to pay money, there's no easy way to get rid of your old tweets without getting rid of your account. And so I've been going through and when I have time, you know, going through the process. And I asked years ago, during the pandemic, whether or not people believed that science was self-correcting. I didn't get a huge engagement on this question, but to the extent that people engaged, most people said no. They mm -hmm. did not believe that. With caveats, of course, like there are there are very big, clear examples where it has been. But in general, there's a feeling that there's just so much that gets out uh, put out so into out there. there. Like it just it, there's too much for it to be able to be self-correcting. But I think it's a goal. I don't think there. I don't. I think yeah. that's the kind of in the ideal sense it would be. And so the question is how to. How to make it more so? Well, I, and I don't know the answer to that, but I, I do go back to your earlier point. I mean, I would not be in favor of getting rid of the detail because I think actually we need the detail. But it does speak to the fact that maybe what we really need is different descriptions for different audiences. So there is a, a scientific audience who needs a lot of the detail. And there may be another audience that needs more than what's in the abstract, but less than what's in the whole paper and written in a, a language that is easier for people to understand. And maybe that, you know, we need that. Has either of you ever worked on a paper or a project that was meant to kind of dismantle a finding that another team had done in your space? I don't think so. No. no like, have, you I, ever, have, I, you ever, have you ever been correcting someone else's? I, I have not, but my husband as a doctoral student spent four years trying to replicate a physics finding that then in the end was documented to be fraudulent. Oh, so I heard a lot about that. I heard a lot about that process, but not directly, but yeah. Just, have yeah, you, have you had that experience? The idea of self-correcting science. I think some people would say the fact that there's incentives for knocking down really highly mm. cited research would be the, would, would be sort of a better self-correction tool than like eliminating the discussion sections that allow research to become highly cited in the first place. Oh, for sure. For sure. But, I, but I also don't know that like that many of us are really out there trying to right. knock down other science. Like I feel like we're, I could be wrong about this, but I think that's harder to do in our field because when you see the replication crisis that psychological sciences has gone through, I think in part, the reason why they have come to that and why they have been able to, to approach that with this sort of replication fascination with, with, with doing replication studies is in part because the kinds of studies that they are doing are a niche, right? So you come up with sort of this like pet hypothesis that you then, you know, find evidence for or against, but also they're, they're often far less expensive to actually do a replication study of, like you can, you know, you can do these, these trials with, you know, X hundred people. It takes, you know, one hour of, somebody's time. It's not, it's not as near They're as hard to do. Students. The, yeah, I was going to say that, but that does seem like that's a big market for psychological sciences research. And so you can do that. Whereas we are studying things that are much more broad. You can, you, you're not going to go out and collect data to confirm, or in your case, to, you know, sort of take down somebody else's study, but there will also be a, a whole body of literature on a particular exposure outcome pair. And therefore it isn't so much to, to take down as it is to just sort of like, what does everybody find on this particular 
topic. So I, I think in that case, maybe our field isn't as focused on that, but science in general maybe is. I, I would add there's this really high profile story right now along those lines about this professor at Harvard Business School. Did you read this this weekend? Uh -huh. um, yeah, where, you know, they there was a group of of researchers who kind of focused on identifying her, looking at her original data sources, Francesca Gino at Harvard Business School, and the way that they identified what they claimed to be data fraud was not through the discussion section, but, no. but was through access to her original data files. Right. And, and so it was access to the raw data and then comparing the raw data to the data that was submitted alongside the manuscript and seeing discrepancies. And I actually went through this this weekend, this blog, Data Colada, where this is kind of what they do is they identify these high profile studies and they say, let's dig into the raw data. And then they found all these discrepancies and the university and others were saying the only way that these discrepancies logically made sense was that the investigator manipulated the data after it was, after the raw data came to her prior to the analysis being done, which is, which is damning evidence. But it's interesting. And that didn't come from the discussion section that came from yeah. access to, to having both the original data and then the data that was publicly available. Yeah. And this to be clear, I don't, I don't think that discussion sections are where we're going to find evidence of fraud or anything like that. I also, I could be naive. I think fraud exists, but I think it's a, a small problem compared to just the bad research that's out there. So you can put those in two separate buckets. That's different from me saying the incentives for me to convince you my study is a good study are aligned with writing a discussion section that that isn't, I don't know how harmful it is. Maybe it is or isn't. I'm just saying I don't, I don't get much out of them the way that I feel like I could if I was getting somebody else's insights or just using my own. My solution is not a good one. Getting rid of them, I don't think is is per se the answer, but I think we need more than what we have. I'm not sure we're coming to a <laughs> conclusion on this one, but it's an interesting discussion. Thank I, you. I heard you all say you agree with me and we should get rid of discussion sections. That's what I, I heard. put it in bullets. That would be if I it's had to choose. I, I feel like, you know, I feel like articles are too long. Well like what if you put your method section, like in a TikTok? Right. Like, are there, oh, are no, there other no, ways? No, 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 no. You can put the discussion <laughs> section in a TikTok. Or, you know, are the there other, are there other media that could be used besides like a really long academic paper to even to talk among academics? Anyway, this is, uh, this, <laughs> this led me to think of that, you know, TikTok is the extreme. So I just, uh, you know. I just, just to, just to get a rise, I'll mention it. Sure. But anyway, let's, let's spin to a amazing and amusing, our final segment of things that were interesting or funny or otherwise unusual. John, you want to go first? Well, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with amazing and amusing. I did it's not require. I had a couple of thoughts, <laughs> you know, Jessica, Harold Cox had told me that I needed to talk to you about rats. Oh yeah. And this summer, I just feel like there was a lot of rat related content mm -hmm. out there. New York City appointed its first rat czar, mm -hmm. as I understand it. Yep. Some very strong my language. Dream job. <laughs> What's that? Getting my dream Your job. Your dream job. <laughs> I'm kidding. kidding. <laughs> so, I, you know, there was like a This American Life episode yep. about rats. Was, uh, I think like a New Yorker reprint of an old article about rats. So I just I've had I've had rats, rats on the on brain the and wanted to talk to you about that. Um, um, unless you all want to talk about The Golden Bachelor, which uh, oh. could also be good. I don't know. But so The Golden Bachelor... I, first of all, I find the whole Bachelor thing very distasteful, and though I do admit that I was once in a Bachelorette fantasy league, so I will admit to that. Okay. Like you were trying to, you had money on 
who the bachelorette was going to choose? Was that the, there's a game? whole system of points okay. you get? It's not just who they choose, but it's also like you get different points for different oh. things that the people okay. say and things like that. I came in last, so <laughs> you will not be surprised. So you didn't have a lot of intuition uh, into this, but I do. I find the whole thing distasteful. But I am not convinced that ratings for even ignoring my displeasure with the whole industry, that ratings for The Golden Bachelor, we, and we should explain what The Golden Bachelor is. Well, I don't have a lot of experience with The Bachelor, Bachelorette franchise, but it's a it's a dating show, reality show, where there's one person who is selected as the central person, uh, in this case a bachelor, and then there's like 20-something others who are vying to fall in love with them. And in this case... This year, it's the Golden Bachelor, who is, I think, 72. I think so. And the, the contestants are in their 60s and 70s, and so sort of in a new age demographic. Yeah, I just, I, based on my understanding of America's feelings about age and the ageism that we exist, that people are just not going to be as into it. I mean, I don't, which isn't to say they might not have. I loved it. I love the idea of it. I do too, but (laughs) we're not the demographic. Well, I love the idea of it because maybe that is the demographic. I don't love the idea. I don't love the idea of the bachelor period. (laughs) Given that they're going to do it, fine. But I'm just not convinced that it's going to get ratings like The Bachelor. I thought it was such a sweet idea and like probably actually is the demographic of people who are watching like network TV, right? There probably are a lot of people over 60, 65 who are watching. It's like on ABC, right? Who are watching kind of mainstream network TV while younger folks are watching TikTok. Bachelor type shows. But then it's 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 something there. For them. I thought okay. the idea of it yeah, was right. very nice. I think you've already been proven wrong. I think <laughs> okay. people, it seems to me that everyone is talking about this. All right, this. everyone's talking about and it. And you know, there's a real appetite. Maybe maybe it's just overload with like, you know, super like normative 20-somethings doing this thing. It's like something just, it's just exciting to see. There, I, so far from, I've only watched one episode, it seems like it's maybe a little more wholesome in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Like it just kind of maybe is giving people something that they feel like they miss out on on these more popular dating reality shows. Here's what I want to (laughs) know. Well, giving them a lot of what they do want, which is like making out and stuff. Here's what I want to know. Do are the advertisements during the show completely different from the ones that appear during the bachelor. Oh, you, you think it's like when Metamucil and stuff. I, <laughs> I have a hypothesis that the, they believe that, that they will, that the target right, audience right. will be different and therefore the advertisements will look more similar to the shows that I watch than the shows my kids watch. <laughs> I don't know. I, I've watched it ad free. I'm, I'm excited to see, I haven't seen it yet, but I definitely look, I, I, when I was younger, I definitely watched the first bachelor with my mom when I was in high school and we had so much fun like it was I don't, I don't think I've seen like any of the subsequent years of it I know it's gone on for like 20 years or something it can be you know it's like a I think it brings happiness sometimes to people it's kind of like a simple concept okay so I'm um, alone in, in hating so, The Bachelor I don't hate I, 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 after the time watching it with my mom I couldn't like hate fair it we enough, had so much fun fair enough yeah. I feel like the format is troubling it's like kind of certain right, hard to it's, watch it's in it's some objectifying. ways but, it's definitely objectifying yeah right. I mean and this uh, but I don't know I was like crying within right. the first few minutes yeah. it was right. really it was intense <laughs> the All first right. few minutes well it starts early I don't want to spoil Okay, but, you know, okay. he starts out talking. Uh, his uh, his 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 wife of many years died. He he okay. talks about this in the. It was so moving. I don't know. Moving. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Well, now we have to see it. Matt, what do you have for amazing and amusing? Really short one. It was a headline from the Washington Post in August second. I grabbed this, but then I forgot about it the last 
couple of times we recorded. It's just a headline I didn't expect to see in the Washington Post, an article by Lindsay Bever. The headline is, Nose Picking Linked to Higher Risk of COVID Study Shows. Oh, no. I, I thought it was interesting that they were that they were deciding to report on that. But what I also thought was interesting about this was this is obvious, right? I mean, the, 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 <laughs> this seems to be one of those things that is not surprising to learn that would be associated with transmission of an infectious disease. And yet, if you go back to early 2020, we were all talking about don't touch your face, not don't pick your nose. Mm. It turned out that touching your face was probably not much of an issue when it came to COVID. And I say as I touch my face, but but nose picking clearly was. And this seems to me so obvious. So why so why were we not talking about it then? Is it because we're uncomfortable talking about it? Because mm. as far as I know, everybody does it. Well, it does fall within touching your face, which we were it's talking a subset about. Of yeah, touching yeah, yeah, it is yeah. a subset, but yeah. it's a very specific subset. But it's kind of like, it's you know, like, stigmatized, is it like sucking your fingers a, or like picking things out of your teeth? Like anytime your hand is kind of coming into contact with the mucosal surface, like itching your eyes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, this one seems to me right. it's it, like we, we, sh, we, sh, we presumably knew this back then, even if we didn't have the data, we knew this was probably, uh, even if we were 100% sure, we probably knew this was not a good idea. And yet we didn't, as far as I remember, we were not really talking about it such that it it took till 2023 that we would have a headline in the (laughs) Washington Post warning us what we shouldn't have been doing in 2020. But think about the politics of that. Oh, you know, it's like you think about the lobby, the lobby. There are people, you know, as we know, a lot of people are against vaccines. (laughs) They're against masks. You, it's like, keep your... Keep Don't. your laws off my nose. Oh, yeah. I, like, you know, I think there would have been a lot of resistance to that if you get that specific. Fair point. Fair point. I can't, I can't beat that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the nose picking lobby. My amazing amusement is, is also in that vein oh, of wow. like, didn't we? No, not about nose picking. Okay. That would have been really coincidental. No, not about nose picking, but about like, isn't this a little bit obvious? Yeah. So this is a totally different field. This was an article published in Biology Letters Mm -hmm. that was reported on by the New York Times this week. The headline was Visual Feedback Influences the Consistency of the Locomotor Patterns in Asian Elephants, Elephus Maximus. Elephus Maximus. And so what they did is they took elephants that were working in Hollywood or other like in circuses, I guess, like trained elephants, and they blindfolded some of them. And then they left others that were not blindfolded. And then they had them walk in a supported way with like their, they said their friends and handlers. So I don't know if they were there, if their friends were human or elephant oh, okay. yep, friends. Yep. And then they used accelerometers and other measures of their gait to see if they, when they were blindfolded, if they stumbled or if they walked at an even pace with the elephants that were not blindfolded. And the finding was that the elephants that were blindfolded had trouble walking. <laughs> And I read this in the New York Times and I was like waiting to get to like the relevance for visual impairment in people or is there like a pop? I I think there is a population level concern for elephants because they're so big that I think if they fall, I think the falls can be fatal or it's very difficult for them to get up, you know, but I, there was no connection to 
to human medicine that was imparted from this study in terms of, was it, I was like, maybe it was peripheral vision or something like they were trying to identify some aspect of vision that related to gait, but they just blindfolded the elephant. And then they said they had to have particularly compliant elephants because, you know, many elephants would not tolerate the blindfold, you know, want anger an elephant. What do they do if they're, ang- if they're not happy with the blindfold? I, these elephants all seemed perfectly fine with it, at least the elephants that they reported on. Okay. But it was one of those findings that, you know, it was reported on by the Times and this kind of generalist science thing that like this is a this is must be really important in the world of elephant biology. And and I was just I was like, what's the link? What's the link? What's the link? It was cool, right, to do research in elephants. But it was kind of like I feel like I've I've talked about a number of these studies in this section where it's like parakeets, you know, like knocking on their, you yeah. know, like their claws or things like that. So yeah. I, I would have to believe that the reason that they did this research was some sort of belief that actually the elephants were going to get blindfolded and do fine. And that was going to prove that elephants have like Maybe that's the ability good. to m- maneuver themselves in it without their eyesight. And they were just proven wrong because otherwise what, why, what if your hypothesis was elephants can't really manipulate their maneuver in their environment when they are blindfolded, let's prove that. I mean, then we could, we could do that. I think there are part, lots of part of it is that, things that we could do. Part of it, to my understanding, is that elephants move around a lot at dusk or dawn. Like they move around in low light oh. conditions, and so the question was like, could they? Was that easy? Did did that mean that they had perfect vision that they were able, you know? And so what they were trying, I think, to get at was the answer was no, that they're moving in the dark or in these, you know, darker settings, and it's still hard for them. Oh. As it would be like if you were walking around, <laughs> even if they simulated that, huh. you know, they could have like maybe simulated a low light setting yeah, really. more than like a blindfold. I feel like there were other ways and maybe to do aggravating that. risk, aggravating the elephant. I don't know. This I, was like a high impact paper in this in yeah. in this field, and it's it's interesting for sure. I'd like to read the discussion I do section. Like to read the discussion. Uh, can I ask one other question? Maybe there is an index involved. You said these were yeah. they were in they were in Hollywood. Yes, there were they they were they, these were not wild elephants. These were trained yeah. elephants that are in movies and things like that. Were they unionized and were they <laughs> on strike true. during the actor strike? True. This right probably now. took are place. They on now? Probably took place before this strike. Or during because they had nothing else to do with the elephants. You never <laughs> so know. True. It's I so don't true. Know. Oh my goodness. Well, on that note, that's the end of our program. If you have any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or topic for us to take on, you can send us a comment at pophealthex.org. We want to thank Nick Guler at BUSPH for sound and producing and Mark Takachi for editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you download our next episode.